Hi, everybody. My name is Lexi, and I serve here on our community team, specifically the coffee cart, if you've stopped by. <laughs> um, and I'm going to read today's teaching scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and hold them up in the air. We are a people of a book. Our understanding of God is not shaped primarily by experience, tradition, popular opinion, culture, or what we're comfortable with. Our understanding of God is shaped by the word of God. This is our first source, final authority, the greatest love story ever written, and the best part of it all, it's true. Okay, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6. I'm going to be reading verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thank her for off. Amen. Hey, I just want to highlight real quick Lexi. Um, Lexi went through Equip this past year. And after going through Equip, she was challenged to memorize scripture. And I was told by our team that Lexi this past year, over the course of 2022, chose to memorize 52 verses of scripture this past year because of what God is doing here in her heart. And so, listen, I'm just grateful to be a part of a church that cherishes and loves the word of God. And I'm grateful for what God is doing here in this place that he is transforming hearts and lives. And I'm just grateful that every single week that we don't just show up and sing songs and we don't just show up and hear a bunch of cute phrases. No, we get into God's word and we worship his name. And so can you just give Jesus some praise and just show, show him some gratitude for what he's doing here in this place? Awesome. Well, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Joe and I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're continuing in this collection of messages that we uh, kicked off this past week. And it's a five-part collection of messages called Be Real. Let me hear y'all say, Be Real. And here's the reality. No matter who you are, we all want something real. Recently, Forbes magazine named this new social media app, Be Real, the app of 2022. And how many of y'all are on Be Real? How many of y'all by show of hands? 
Yeah, a few of y'all, okay. And Be Real is blown up. It has over 20 million daily users. And this app is pretty simple and it's pretty straightforward. Once a day at random times, Everyone will get a notification on their phone and it'll say something like this and it'll pop up on their phone and it'll say, hey, it's time to be real. And will you share with your friends what's really going on? And, um, and when you get this notification, what's cool about this app is that there's no filters, there's no, there's no faking it. You have to take the picture within a two minute time frame. And if you don't, you get this like mark of shame, okay? So that all of your friends know that you were not actually being real and see, I I believe that one of the reasons why Be Real skyrocketed in its popularity is because of its focus on authenticity. That there's no faking it, that photos are unedited, and you're only given a short window, a short window to be real with your friends. And now I just turned 30, and so all of that I found out on the Googles. Um, but what I love about this app is what it's communicating and how it's kind of swept across this nation is that I believe that there is a generation that is tired of fake, that is tired of what's filtered, that is tired of the mundane, tired of the seemingly photoshopped world that we live in and that we have been sold and we long for something that's real we live in a world that is so focused on the external things of this life, so focused on appearance, so focused on performance, so focused on how we can compete and perform and compare ourselves for others. We live for the approval of our peers. We have idolized the approval of our peers. But what if, what if you and I were made not to just live a life that focused on the external things of this world, but on what's eternal? what lasts beyond the here and the now. See, last week, Pastor Joey preached a message about the real love that we are created for. And today's message is all about how we have been created to experience real life. Because here's the reality. Fake focuses on temporary. Fake focuses on what's external. But lives of meaning and lives of significance, lives of purpose, focus on what's eternal above all else. And so if you're taking notes, the title for tonight's message is Real Life, Living Today with Eyes for Eternity. I want to start by asking you this question. When is the last time that you thought about eternity? Not just like heaven, but when's the last time you really thought about like life beyond the here and the now. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. That in every human soul is this God-given awareness that there is something more than this transient world. But somewhere along the line in this postmodern Western world, we've been sold a lie that you are nothing but a scientific accident. And one day you're going to simply be nothing more than dirt in the ground. And if you're lucky, you'll be a tree. And no matter your spiritual background, no matter whether you're here and you're a doubter or you find yourself and you would call yourself a disciple. Or if you're here and you'd say, I'm a skeptic or I'm a saint. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. Eternity is hardwired into your heart and into my heart. 
And you were made for more than just the here and the now. You were made to live a life that matters in eternity. And so tonight we're going to talk about how we focus, how we can focus on the eternal in a world of external pursuits. And in Matthew chapter 6, like Lexi just read for us, we find Jesus is preaching the greatest sermon ever preached. It's the goat of all sermons, and it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that Jesus came to do is he came to this earth to preach and to teach. That's one of the things he did. And it didn't take long for crowds to start to gather to hear what Jesus had to say. And everyday ordinary men and women would show up to hear him preach. And um, people uh, that were poor would show up to preach. And then people that were religious would show up to preach. And when Jesus was communicating, oftentimes he would uh, call out the hypocrisy of the religious. And in the same breath, he would show compassion to the poor and to the broken. And these words that Jesus spoke were not just historical words that meant something for them back then, but these are words that are living and that mean, have, have mattered, that mean and have significance in our lives today. And he's still speaking these words today. And so Jesus starts with this beautiful progression is what's known as the Beatitudes, where he paints this picture of what it looks like to have a blessed life, a fortunate life, a happy life. What does that look like? And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who pursue righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. And it's in this sermon that Jesus gives us a framework where he gives us practical guidelines for how we can live our lives with Jesus and for Jesus and lives that matter in eternity. And the contents of this sermon have eternal ramifications. And so I wish we had time to go through this whole sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. And um, I wish we could go through that, but I know that you guys want to eat dinner at some point. And so we are going to camp out in Matthew chapter 6. And I actually want to start in verse 33 um, near the end of this section because that will give us the frame for how we're going to see the rest of these verses today. And so Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bible, starting in verse 33. Jesus says, this is red letters, he says, but seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. See, from the moment that Jesus first begins his ministry here on this earth, he comes pronouncing the reality that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come, and that's what he focuses on much of Jesus' teachings. In fact, more than anything else, Jesus comes and he speaks about the kingdom of God. See, Jesus wanted to make it clear that he came to usher in a new way to do life, a new way to relate to God, a better way to do life, a life that is under his reign and submits to his rule and lives in his ways. And part of living in Jesus' kingdom is not living for the external things of this life, but living for the eternal things that reflect his kingdom here on this earth as it is in heaven. And so this is how we're called to relate to God, reflecting his kingdom and his ways. And so what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? Well, simply it's Jesus' rule and Jesus' reign over heaven and earth. His rule and reign over heaven and earth. The kingdom of God is the rule of an eternal, sovereign God over all of the universe. It's where God is supreme and Jesus Christ is king. And the beauty of what Jesus came to do for you and for me was to bring God's kingdom from heaven to earth so that you and I could enter into it. 
See, the kingdom of this world is limited by the external, by the here and the now, but God's kingdom is eternal and it outlasts everything here on this earth. And this is important for us to know and to understand because what you believe about eternity will impact and shape what you do today. How you live today is shaped by what you believe about what is to come. How many of y'all remember uh, seeing the movie The Gladiator? The Gladiator? Remember, remember Russell Crowe? And um, I loved Russell Crowe way better in this movie, holding a sword, than in Les Mis. Um, that was terrible. <laughs> and, but there's this scene in Gladiator. And I love this scene. I'll never forget the scene. It's near the beginning of the movie and he's standing in front of his army and he's seated, seated on a horse and he's before his army and he's div- doing that, you know, pre-war sp- speech, that battle speech, that battle cry, and he's hyping them up. And at the end of his speech, Russell Crowe looks at his army and, he's, and he says, brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And they all go, Rah! and they cheer and they go into battle. And what's crazy is that he was actually so right that everything that we do today, everything about our present reality is connected to eternity. What we do in life really does echo in eternity, but yet so many of us, we wake up and we merely let life happen to us. We live mundane, boring, mediocre lives that are filled with worry and the external pursuits of this world rather than the pursuit of worshiping the eternal God of the universe. And so we need to live lives with the end in mind, with eternity in mind. See, when I talk about eternity today, what I want you to think about is the things of God or living for the kingdom of God, living beyond just the here and the now, living in the reality that the kingdom of God has come, but it's not yet fully realized that the kingdom of God has come, but it's not yet done, that Jesus is going to come and he's going to come and make all things new beyond the here and the now. And so that's the frame for how we're going to study this passage today. And so let's go to the beginning of this in verse 25, Jesus in his little sermonette within the sermon, he says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. If you've got a Bible, underline that. Do not be anxious. Eternal perspectives free us from the external worries of life. Eternal perspectives free us from the external worries of life. See, Jesus' desire for your life is made crystal clear in this sermon. It's that you and I would not worry. In fact, four times in this short little sermonette, he calls us, commands us, do not be anxious. Why is he doing that? Well, historically speaking, to the people he was speaking to in that time period, Uh, anxiety is actually what characterized the pagan religions of that day. And if we're honest, it characterizes the pagan religions of today as well. They were dominated by the fears of a changeable, unpredictable, tyrannical deity that they followed that they didn't know how to appease. And so they lived these lives of worry and anxiety and to you know, numb the pain and numb the anxiety. What they did is they started to focus on all of the external, on physical diet and exercise, and they chose not to think at all about the spiritual realm, spiritual growth and nutrition. See, worry was their religion, 
and external became their focus. And it sounds a lot like the world that we live in today too that, cha- that is changeable and unpredictable and we never really know what's right and wrong or good enough and, or who to follow and who to trust and who to support and who to vote for. And so we preoccupy ourselves with focusing solely on the external rather than the eternal. And we live in the most anxious generation to ever exist. See, for so many of us, if we're honest, worry isn't just the thing that you do. Sometimes it's like part of your identity. It's your language. It's what caused you to worry earlier if the person next to you could hear you singing off pitch while we were worshiping. You're just stressed out about what's happening in the room. It's what caused you from the moment I got here up on stage to worry and wonder what is he going to talk about? What is he going to say tonight? It's caused your hands to start to sweat. It's what keeps you up at night. It's what makes you mindlessly scroll on your phone all throughout the day. It's not just part of your life. For so many, it rules your life. See, culturally, we're a nervous wreck and no one is immune to it. Studies show that 86% of people consider themselves worriers. People on average say that they spend one hour and 50 minutes a day worrying. That's 13 hours a week. 28 days a year, six years of our lives worrying. Think about that in light of eternity. And I understand that the reality of anxiety can be physiological, it can be physical, and we want you to help, we want to come alongside you to take care of your mental health and to help you get the right counseling and therapy that you need, and we would even love to help you get that. But I believe, though, that Jesus never wants us to settle into the cultural status quo of the day and just merely accept our anxiety and just live with it. No, he wants you to find freedom from it. Freedom from it. So that being said, I want to remind you that we believe in a God who heals, the Lord who heals, and mental health may be an issue, a battle that you're in, but Jesus is the great physician that can heal your mind. And if Jesus commands us not to be anxious, then he's going to provide a way for us to come out of the very thing that is keeping us from experiencing the life he created us for. And so this isn't a whole message on anxiety, though, so if your hands are clammy, it's okay, I promise. But what I want to do is I want to remind you, a year ago, actually, Pastor Joey preached two messages on anxiety that I know changed my life and changed so many people's lives in our church. And I actually earlier today went on our YouTube and put them at the top of our YouTube for any of you. You're here in this room and maybe you're wrestling with anxiety and you're looking for freedom from it. I wanna encourage you, check out those messages, anxious for nothing in an anxious generation. I promise you they'll change your life. And Pastor Joey taught out of this passage and I just wanna read it over us tonight. Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul, he says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus' heart is to lead you into the peace that he promises. The serenity that's available in him. And the security in knowing that the God of the universe cares for you deeply. And so my hope is that you would find yourself careless in the care of God. See, living with an eternal perspective gives you freedom from the external worries of this life. And notice then Jesus talks about what we wear. And I love how in the message version it says says that um, we should not worry about whether or not our clothes and our closet are in fashion. Hello. See, if we're honest, most of us are 
more worried about what we're going to wear because we're obsessed about people's opinions of us. And what we need to do is actually learn to stop idolizing people's opinions and start to filter those worries through the eternal lens that Jesus wants to give us. Asking ourselves, hey, does this matter in the end? Does this matter in light of eternity? And then the next analogy that Jesus gives here is one of the most stunning claims I've ever read in the entire Bible. And it's this, in verse 25, he says, is not life more than food? Like, this is one of those moments where I'm like, God, come on, I love food. I've been, like, I love food. You're going to say life is more than food. Like, okay, listen, I've been trying to eat healthier this year, and I've been trying to, you know, watch what I eat, and never before in my life have I caught myself daydreaming about a French fry. Anyone else with me? Like, you love French fries? Like, I love French fries, and just like Oprah, I love bread. Anyone else love bread? Like, nobody loves bread more than me. I love bread so much. And, and one of the things, like, uh, some of y'all, y'all just love, like, sweet treats, you know? Like, some of y'all, y'all got sweet tooths, and you just get excited about, you know, eating ice cream. Like, some of you, you you're like, I'm going to eat a salad for lunch today because later I'm going to have a cookie. Or I'm going to get a piece of cake. For me, I'm like, nah, no, 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 I don't care about that. All I care about is cheese and bread. Like, for me, my mouth starts to water when I just think about buffalo wings. I love food, but right here in this moment, Jesus says, is not life more than food? See, Jesus is right, and he's asking this rhetorical question to relate to his audience. See, in this day, those people didn't have to worry about whether or not they were going to get likes on that new reel they just posted. They didn't have to worry where their iPhone charger went. They didn't have to worry about when am I getting my Be Real notification. They were worried about how much bread they had and whether or not they were going to have enough to feed their family. And that's how this question was posed in first century Palestine for the Jewish people of the day. But I want to ask, how would this question hit you today? Is not life more than, is it not more than Graduating from UGA, any dogs fans in the house? Dogs fans, you watch that game. What, the beauty about that game, at least, is like you didn't have to worry about whether or not you were going to win. <laughs> like it was a sure deal, it was a done deal from the moment the ball was first kicked off. But I want to ask, how would this question hit today? Is not life more than, and I'm going to go here, football? Is not life more than fantasy football? Is not life more than getting that degree, landing that dream job, climbing that corporate ladder, getting that raise, one day driving that BMW that you've always wanted, passing that milestone on social media? Is not life more than the likes or followers that you can accumulate or the results that you can produce or the sales that you can make? Is not life more than the external desires that are the driving force of your life. And what does asking this question do? Is it helps to give us an eternal perspective. Life is more than the thing that has captured my mind right now. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. And the next time you find yourself worrying, the next time you find yourself anxious, the next time you find yourself thinking about the things of this world, I want you to remind yourself, life is more than the thing that has captured my mind right now. And too many people 
experience misery in this life because they're motivated by just the external things around them, but that shall not be so among the people of God. See, God's people experience blessing in this life because they're not motivated by the things that are here and then gone tomorrow. They're motivated by the eternal. And so the next time you feel anxious or worried or stressed out, what if you grabbed a piece of paper and a pen or your notes app on your phone and you started to ask yourself the same question that Jesus asked them, is not life more than, and you fill in the blank, fill in the blank, is not life more than whatever it is that you're worried about in that moment. And ask yourself, is this an eternal struggle? Or is this a temporary worry? I love how C.S. Lewis once wrote, he says, all that is not eternal is eternally useless. You know what is eternal, people? Souls investing in loving God's people, loving God and discipling your family and your friends to see them enter into and experience the kingdom of God and a work that is worthy of eternity. See, external desires will fade, but eternal desires fuel a life that lasts. And Jesus continues in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Listen, we live in a life where we're all just trying to measure up to the people around us. We're more concerned about comparison and approval, and we're just trying to measure up. But what Jesus is doing right here, he's just trying to get us to look up, to look up at the birds of the sky and ask ourselves, hey, if God cares about the sparrows and the pigeons and even the chickens, how much more does he care about you and me? He cares about us. If he cares even for the marabou stork, have you all ever seen this bird right here? The ugliest bird to ever exist. God cares about that, y'all. And if God could care about that, how much more would he care about you and me? See, here's what Jesus is pointing out with this point, is that birds, they don't gather. They don't need to store up because they know that each and every day they're going to have what they need, that God is providing for their every day. That's why Jesus, he mentions this and earlier in Matthew chapter 6 when he's teaching us how to pray. What does he do when he teaches us how to pray? He says, give us today our daily bread. He says, every day, ask God, give me today my daily bread, oh Lord. Because he knows that each and every day we'll start to worry about tomorrow, but he wants to remind us, no, ask God today for what you need today. Because he's a God who's going to provide. This points back to the Old Testament when the nation of Israel finds themselves in the wilderness for 40 years after God freed them from slavery from the Egyptians. And when they're in the wilderness, they had to trust God every single day. That God would provide for them protection and food and security. That God would care for them. And every single day, what did God do? He promised that he would provide them food. And so they would wake up in the morning and this dew would fall to the ground. And it was known as manna. And it would turn into sweet, flaky bread that gave them them the food that they needed for that day and later on he would cause quail to fly through their space and they would have quail as well and God told them he said I'm going to give you enough for each day but do not store up do not hoard up food for tomorrow and what did they do they started to get stressed out and worried is God going to provide tomorrow and so one day they gather everything up and they start to hoard everything together they just went to Costco and they're like come on let's get all of our stuff right here and what does God do he said nope all that food spoiled gone 
He says, I am going to provide for you enough for each and every day. See, this call for us to look at the birds almost seems like a slight that Jesus has given. Like he's like coming out our faith. He's like, hey, look at the birds. Even they can do it. Why can't you do it? Why can't you trust God? They trust God. Why can't you trust God in the real life that God's created you and I for is a life that we trust God despite our current circumstances. That it may not look like I'll have enough for tomorrow, but my God cares for the birds. And if he cares for a sparrow, surely he'll provide for me. See, the antidote for anxiety is trusting God. I'm going to put my faith, my trust in him. That I'm going to trust that even though my external circumstances may seem frail in the moment, my God is faithful from beginning to end. And rather than focusing on all the things that cause me to worry in this life, I'm going to fix my eyes on him and his goodness and his faithfulness. In verse 27, Jesus continues, he says, And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life. Do you know the surest thing in this life is that you and I are going to die? I'm going to die. And at some point, each and every one of us, we're going to breathe our last breath. And what he's saying is we can't add days or even hours to our lives. We are not God. Did you know that right now there's several billionaires around this world, Jeff Bezos included, that are spending millions, if not billions, of dollars trying to find ways to beat death, trying to find ways to stop the curse of aging, trying to invent a way for immortality. Like I was reading on this, and it's bizarre, and it's sick, and it's weird, and it's gross. But it's true. It's happening right now. Right now there's a company in California that it's buying and selling young people's blood to old people for $8,000 a liter so that you can put young blood in your body so that you can live longer. Right now, there's a neurosurgeon who's trying to get the scientific community to allow him to perform the first ever head transplant and brain transplant because he says that he can beat this curse of death and that it's a viable option for living forever. Sounds like a horror movie. Right now, there's people trying to upload their consciousness to the cloud in hopes that one day they'll just download it onto a new body. Right now, there are people that are freezing their bodies in hopes that later on they can thaw it out and they'll live a new life. This is ludicrous. This is wild. Jesus says you cannot add a single hour to your life. And they're doing all of this for what? So that you can play golf a little longer, so that you can enjoy retirement, so you can enjoy your mansion here on this earth a little bit longer. Jesus' half-brother James, he says, what is your life in James 4? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Just like the countdown that you get with Be Real, two minutes, post your photo, and it's done. Life is short, it's but a vapor. And there's no amount of Botox that you can add to your life to keep you from experiencing the reality of death. And Jesus is wanting us to be less concerned with the length of our lives and more concerned with the legacy that we leave behind. See, focusing on the length of your life is you saying life is all about me, what I can do for me. But focusing on your legacy is all about what you can do for people. To invest in etern things that are of eternal significance that will last beyond the here and now. Your days are numbered. 
you're not buying more time. See, every breath we have to breathe is given to us from God, and it's an invitation to experience life with him. And every day we are given an opportunity to live for God because God is the giver of life. And Jesus continues in verse 28. He says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. That word consider means to learn thoroughly, to examine carefully. I don't know if you know much about King Solomon. That's who he's referring to right here. And he was known as not only being the wisest man to ever live, but also the richest man to ever live. That if you adjusted his wealth with today's inflation, Solomon would have been worth more than $2.3 trillion. That's with a T, trillion dollars. But right here in this moment, Jesus is saying that not even Solomon and all of his riches and all of his glory could clothe himself with the amount of care that God gives even just for the lilies of the field. In other words, every single day, God is investing more than $2.3 trillion of care into your life. Now, some of y'all are like, I wish you would invest that into my bank account. Come on, God. Every single day. Listen, I get it that so many times it seems like more money would solve all the problems in your life. Like, I've bought a lottery ticket before too, hoping that maybe I would win. Instead, you just waste money. But what Jesus wants you and me to understand is that pursuing money will not solve your problems. Most often, more often than not, it creates more problems. And he's not advocating for you and me to live in what's known as the poverty gospel where followers of Jesus need to live lives of poverty. No, he's certainly not advocating for that. And he's not advocating for a prosperity gospel where if you give to God, then you'll be rich and your life will be perfect and everything will be great. No, no, no. It's great to get money so that you can be generous, but it's not great when money gets you. And when money gets you is when it consumes your thoughts and your mind and your attention and your worry. Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, he says, a person's life does not consist in the possessions that he has. It's said that it's not wrong to possess things, but it's wrong for things to possess us. And they control us. See, the birds and the lilies that Jesus is talking about, they don't fret, they don't worry, yet they have God's wealth in the ways that mankind will struggle to comprehend. That your life is more than what you can accumulate. Real life is not about possessions. It's about purpose. It's about pursuing the person of Jesus in seasons of plenty and in seasons of lack. And in verse 30, Jesus continues. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more much clothe you? O you of little faith. I want you to ask yourself no matter where you're at in this life, what am I living for right now that will not matter in the end? Like what is it that you give your time and your attention and your resources and your care to today that really in the end isn't going to matter? See, life is so short. A couple weeks ago, the entire nation was rocked, was caught off guard with the reality of eternity when millions of people witnessed a man go through cardiac arrest on a football field and Damar Hamlin, his 
cardiac arrest and what he went through, it kind of put the nation into shock. And I remember standing there in front of the TV and just watching sports commentators not have a clue what to do or what to say, just shocked. And I believe why what happened sent shockwaves across this country is because for the first time in a long time, we were called to really think about the reality of death. The reality that life is so short that one day you'll be alive and the next day you could be gone. And that rocks people who don't think about eternity often. I saw this tweet, this post that came out after um, Damar Hamlin woke up and it said this. said that Damar Hamlin was alert enough to ask doctors who won the game. He writes on a piece of paper who won the game as soon as he wakes up and their response was, Damar, you won. You won the game of life. That's crazy for me to comprehend that in all of what had happened, that life was compared to just winning and losing. No, life isn't about winning and losing. It's about knowing God and enjoying him forever here on earth and eternity with him in heaven. And the most inevitable thing about this life is that it's going to come to an end. And the reason that it's shocking is because of how few of us actually think about that. See, grass in this culture, when Jesus is talking about grass here, it was simply used for fuel for the fires. It was built up and then thrown into fuel for the fires here and then gone. He's reminding us here of the frailty of life, that it's a mist. Then he continues on, he says in verse 31, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. See, life isn't about getting what we want. It's about getting God himself. And here's where Jesus turns this analogy and he starts to flip what's happening here. And he says, your heavenly father knows. He knows. Your heavenly father knows how much food you need, how much money you need. But beyond that, he knows your every care. He knows your every dream. He knows your every desire. He knows what the longings of your heart need. He knows your every need and he's calling you to trust in him. That regardless of life's circumstances, the worst term, the worst case scenario for a follower of Jesus is that you would inherit the things of this life but then miss out on him. See, Jesus is the point of life. Jesus is what life is all about. And if you miss Jesus, you miss the life that he's created you for. See, the true wealth to be found in this life is simply Jesus. Your happiness, your joy here on this life is rooted solely in him and him alone that everything else in this life is going to fade away. He says in verse 33, like where we started, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. See, seeking first the kingdom of God is as direct as it sounds, that we are to seek the things of God as priority over the things of this world. He paints the picture right then and there that seeking first the kingdom isn't about getting God in on what we're doing, It's about getting in on what God is already doing, the work he is already accomplishing, and he's inviting us to play a part in his story. 
that God is sovereign over all, but God's sovereignty is a participatory sovereignty, that he invites you and me to be a part of what he's doing, his eternal work of redemption, of pushing back sin, of pushing back darkness, and of ushering in the light of heaven into a dark and dying world. He's like, I'm already working. Would you get in on what I'm doing? Would you live a life that matters? Seek first the kingdom. Would you step into my purpose, into my plan? This word seek means to run after, to set our heart on, to keep thinking about that above all else, that we would seek to be a citizen of God's rule and to walk in Jesus' ways. It looks like our participation that our participation is built on our obedience to Jesus, that we seek his righteousness, that we seek his holiness, that we live lives that look like him. Seeking looks like posturing our lives so that we can be in pursuit of his presence, that each and every day we would take a moment to pause and in stillness seek his spirit, his presence, his nearness each and every day. Seeking first the kingdom looks like Jesus getting my priority, Jesus getting priority with my time, that he comes first, that he gets the best part of my day. He doesn't get the leftovers. No, Jesus gets the very first that I have to offer. It's in my perspective that in all things I see Jesus over everything. It's Jesus and then my wife and my kids and my ministry and my family. And you just move on down the list. It's that Jesus is over everything that I orient my whole life around him, around his ways. In your family, in your work, in your vacationing, in your resting, in your caring, in your driving, and shopping, and sales calls, and all of it. That you'd pursue Jesus. See, your life will never matter more than when you find yourself seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. King David in Psalm 73, I love this. He says, he's talking to God. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Nothing. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So what desire do you need to let go of to pursue Jesus first? What external thing in your life is occupying your time and stealing your attention and it's causing your soul to starve? What do you need to let go of today? See, your life will never feel as satisfied as when you make God prime, your primary object of your attention and your worship and your desires. And What if that could be our heart like King David to say, there is nothing, nothing I desire more than you, O oh God. That's what it looks like to live this life that Jesus is talking about. And he ends this section right here by saying, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. So how do we overcome this worry about tomorrow? Well, he lays it out, faith. This idea of faith is trusting God, that I would trust God to meet my needs, that I would look to my heavenly Father, knowing that he cares for his children, that he's the only one that can provide what I need, the forgiveness of my sin, the salvation from my soul, and the strength that I need to carry on through this day. 
that I would seek him first, that I would put God's will first in my life, that he would be who I seek to glorify, who I live for, that I would trust him over and over again. See, eternity is nearer now than we've ever realized. It's coming. It's coming. Near the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew, Jesus, speaking of eternity, he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Listen, heaven and hell are so real. And everyone spends eternity in one of those places. The Bible paints this picture of hell as this place of eternal separation from God for those that choose to reject Jesus choose not to follow Jesus and trust in him as the Lord of their life, eternal separation and suffering. But then heaven is a place where Jesus' followers live forever with God for all of eternity, where everything wrong is made right, where every pain is no more, and the cares of this life fade away in the glory of his embrace, of knowing Jesus, of walking with Jesus. And the only way to experience heaven is by trusting in Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7 that life with him, it's not going to be easy. It's not promised that it's going to be easy. He says it's the narrow way. It's the hard way. It's the way that, yes, will at times seem more difficult. But it's the way that leads to real, abundant, full, satisfying life. Life that you were created for eternity with God. So we've got to understand today, church, that your impact on people, your impact on the kingdom your impact in living for eternity is what is going to follow us all the days of our life and into eternity. There's this picture of heaven in the Bible that all things are going to be made new. That every tear will be wiped away. That every good thing that the enemy has stolen will be restored in Jesus. That the lost will be found and the broken will be healed and what has been ruined is going to be restored. So let's live with that in mind knowing that Jesus is coming back for his kids. And so I'm going to live my life today to make much of his name. I love how the author and pastor, John Piper, he writes in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, which our church just went through reading. And, and he talks about throughout this book, this poem that's on the wall in his house by C.T. Studd. And it says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ what would it look like for you to live a life that says only what's done for Christ will last? I'll close with this story. In the, in the fifth century, the gladiator games were huge in Rome. Gladiator games, you've watched movies, you've seen these scenes, you've seen these pictures of this Roman culture where these games took place for almost a thousand years 
where the Colosseum would be filled with more than 65,000 people on a regular basis that would show up, about as much people that fit into the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and they would gather to watch these bloody, horrific battles take place right before their eyes, where they would see men and women murdered in the name of sport. They would gather and it just became part of their everyday. Like, could you imagine growing up in that culture, in that Roman society where they would just, you would just, you know, go on a date and watch these gladiator games take place and you would laugh, you would have fun and you would just make a spectacle of it all. Well, in 404 AD, there was this little monk named Telemachus and he traveled from his home in Asia after being led by the Holy Spirit to Rome. And the Holy Spirit leads him to Rome. And when he arrives in Rome, he eventually follows all of these crowds. He's like, where is everybody going? He follows these crowds and he finds himself in the Colosseum. And it's there in the Colosseum that this gladiator battle was taking place. And he comes into the Colosseum and led by the Holy Spirit and the conviction of what God was doing in his heart, he sees what's happening, that there is this bloody battle taking place and these people are just cheering him on. And he sees what's happening and so Holy Spirit leads him onto the field. And he finds himself on the field and the story goes that he walks out onto this field and he tries to get his himself in between these two gladiators that are fighting to the death and he gets in between the two of them and he starts to shout out three times he says in the name of Christ forbear he's pushing them aside in the name of Christ forbear he says in the name of Jesus stop at once the gladiators they drop their weapons and the fighting stopped The crowd was enraged. Their fun, their spectacle, their sport, all of a sudden stopped by this little monk that was now on the field. And so the crowd begins to get furious and angered. And they look down at this monk and they begin to pick up stones and they start to hurl stones at little Telemachus on the field. And little Telemachus on this field surrounded by 65,000 people is stoned to death. And this crowd then looks down at this field after they're done throwing their stones and they see little Telemachus lying there in a pool of his own blood. And, and all of a sudden the crowd begins to get silent. And one by one, the crowd leaves the Colosseum. They walk out. Word the next day gets to the Roman emperor. And that day, the Roman emperor made a decree that the gladiator games were to be no more. And not a single gladiator battle was fought in Rome again. One man, he said, I'm gonna follow the Holy Spirit. Little Saint Telemachus, I'm gonna follow the Holy Spirit wherever he leads. One man, his decision to say, in the name of Jesus, stop, changed a culture, changed all of human history from that point on. Choosing to live a life that matters. 
Now you may be here today and you may be thinking, well, Joe, I can't do something like that. Well, you can choose to live a life today that says, I'm gonna follow the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna speak even when everyone else is being silent. I'm gonna be obedient to the word of God to live in such a way that I seek the kingdom of God and I seek his righteousness and it doesn't matter what's happening around me. I'm gonna be obedient and I may not feel like I can change the world, but you know what? I'm gonna wake, every, wake up every single day believing that I can change somebody's world. And then I'm gonna live my life today believing, okay, there is somebody that God is gonna put before me and my path and their path is gonna intersect and I'm gonna have an opportunity to point them to the God of the universe, the God that loves them and tell them about the hope that is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That every single day God gives us breath in our lungs and his mercies are new like we sung about. And every single day we get an opportunity to live a life that matters beyond the here and now. That I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna say, Jesus, what do you have for me today? How can I live today to make much of your name? How can I live today to not just coast, to not just let another day go by because I know that today may be gone tomorrow. And so I'm gonna live today a life that matters, a life that seeks Jesus, a life that points people to the hope and the glory that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful God, that you would demonstrate your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, God, while we turned our backs on you, you demonstrated your love for us by sending Jesus to the cross so that we could be made right with you, God, so that we could know you, God. God, I'm grateful that you didn't place us on this earth to just do life on our own, but that you are with us. And you say that we, when we seek you with our whole heart, God, we will find you. And so God, we're calling on you because we know that you will be found. We're calling on you, God, because we know that you are near. And I'm just begging, I'm just asking God, would we be a church that doesn't live for the external, the temporal things of this life, but would we be a people that you would mark your church, Elevate City, with a conviction that says, I am going to live each and every day, making much of Jesus, seeking first his kingdom and his ways, and that in my work and in my job and in my life and in my parenting and in my studying and in everything that I do, I'm gonna live to make much of Jesus and I'm gonna seek his ways and I'm gonna live to point people to him and I'm gonna live to tell the story of what you've done for me, that you saved my soul and that Jesus, you truly are the way, the truth, and the life. And that I wanna live today making sure that heaven is crowded. And I'm gonna live today pointing as many people as I can to the narrow path, the path that leads to life. And so God, may we be a people that are marked by obedience to your word, that are marked by seeking first your kingdom, that are marked by your ways, your ways. God, forgive us for the times that we've chose to live our lives just for us, just for what we can accumulate and for what we can gather up for ourselves. God, forgive me. God, may we live lives with open hands, hearts that are surrendered, 